0: You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com.
1: Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. And the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I say, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like a fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and brings them like a tent to dwell in, who who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is in, he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no strength, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. This is one of the most beloved
0: chapters of the Bible. And so it's going to be fun to be able to engage it this morning. Uh, my name is Bob. I'm the lead pastor here at Coromdeo. Um, haven't been here in the pulpit for about five or six weeks. Every summer I try to take just a season where I can get away with my family a little bit, uh, where I can spend some time working on the church instead of in the church, and where you can get a chance to hear from some of the other leaders that God has raised up in Coromdeo. And so uh, that's been the last six weeks or so. I'm really glad to be back uh, preaching this morning. And especially if you're not yet a Christian, if you're a doubter, a questioner, you're not sure what you think about the gospel, about Jesus, about Christians, I want you to know we started this church for you and for people like you. Our desire is that this would be a place where you can be where you're welcome, where you can ask whatever questions you have, where you can wrestle through whatever things you are wrestling through in your understanding of God, and where you can find some people who will come alongside you and and love you and walk with you in that and and encourage you. And so uh, that's what we hope to do here, and I'd love to meet you if you're newer. I'll be out in the hallway afterwards. Just come introduce yourself. I'd love to know a little bit of your story and um, how you got here. So um, I've got three announcements that I need to make before we actually look at Isaiah 40 this morning, so I hope you'll indulge me just a few moments to highlight a few things that you need to know. And the first announcement is for you men. So if you're a man in the room, age 15 or older, I need you to stand up right now. Yes. Look around, brothers. See one another. Here's, I want you to stand because I want you to receive this announcement as a word to you and for you. All right. I'm speaking to you right now. The Coromdale men's retreat is happening at the end of September. That's about eight weeks from now. And registration opens today. And I'm telling you that because I want all of you there. I would love for you to come. In fact, I'm going to try to overcome whatever objections you may have to coming on the Corumdale men's retreat. As we think about discipleship in our church, the men's retreat is sort of the high point of the year in terms of our investment in the men of Coromdale. So I'm making you stand for an awkwardly long time so that you feel this and know that I want you there. You may sit back down. Thank you for standing. Um, the way we're building this retreat is we're going to go out on Thursday evening. We'll spend all day Friday and most of Saturday together. And so we're asking that you'd get Friday off work. And so that requires some planning and foresight. I know you've got to swap some hours here and there or whatever. So I just want you to have that on your radar. I want you to register today, um, and I want you to begin planning for that. And uh, if you're a wife, girlfriend, sister, friend of one of these dudes, encourage them. Kick them out the door. Get them to this retreat, all right? Second announcement, just concerns how to be communicated with, all right? Uh, Part of the challenge at at Quorum Deo is that we're a diverse church. We're scattered throughout the city. We don't have a permanent facility. There's just lots of challenges to communication, So there's primarily two ways we help you know what's going on. We send out a monthly email, and then we use a social networking tool called The City. If you're not signed up for either of those, chances are you have no idea what's going on in Quorumdale, all right? And I only talk up here, we only announce from up front a small portion of, of the things that are actually going on. So help me help you. And if you would like to know and be communicated with and know what's going on in the church... Uh, go to the cormdale website cdomaha.com there's a little button that says get connected and you can click that sign up for the monthly email and or sign up to use the city all right final announcement is a giving update for the months of june and july just to let you know how we're tracking and trending financially um, what we need every month is about $116,000 in change to to pursue the things god's called us to do and move his mission forward Um, June you see was a great month we were ahead of that and so we had a little bit of surplus July was not so great a month we were a little behind that and so just want you to have that information so that you can know those of you who are giving faithfully and generously thank you those of you who aren't yet giving generously and faithfully invite you to join in all right now's your chance Uh, if you're a Christian This is part of what worship looks like. David said when he sort of introduced our service that worship is not singing, worship is life. And part of how we worship God is in honoring him with our finances and with financial giving and stewardship. And so I want to urge you in that direction if you're a Christian and if this is your church. Well, we've been working our way this year through the book of Isaiah, this majestic Old Testament prophetic book. And we come today to a new section of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55. Uh, Dusty used the analogy a couple weeks ago of the pedestrian bridge that links Omaha and Council Bluffs. And he said, if you want to think about Isaiah using a metaphor, chapters 1 through 35 are one piece of land. And then you have this bridge from chapters 38 to 39. And then chapters 40 and on, we're in new territory. And so we sort of crossed that bridge, and we're standing this morning in chapter 40, looking out ahead through the coming chapters of Isaiah, beginning a new section of the book. And what that means is that Isaiah is going to highlight for us yet another aspect of God's being in character. I hope you picked up by now that God is the main character in the book. Not just of this book, but of the whole Bible. The Bible, the key figure and feature and character in Scripture is God himself. And Isaiah began in in chapters 1 through 12, highlighting the fact that God is the holy judge. You remember Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In chapters 13 through 39, the focus was on God as the sovereign king of all the earth, the one who rules and reigns everything and everyone. In chapters 40 through 55, the focus and the emphasis is going to be on God as the suffering servant. Isaiah wants you to see that this holy God, this sovereign God, is also a gracious God. A giving God. A selfless God. And you see the change in tone from the very beginning of this section. The very first word of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. So so we've... We've come from some stern chapters. Isaiah's spoken some unvarnished truth. But now we come to a chapter where his goal is to offer us comfort. That's an idea we can get behind, isn't it? We like comfort. We're into comfort. No one wants to be uncomfortable. We like to be comforted and we like to pursue comfort. And here's usually what we do in our pursuit of comfort. We achieve comfort through a change in our circumstances, right? So let's say that you are not comfortable in your house. Or you're not comfortable in your job. Or you're not comfortable in your marriage. Or you're not comfortable even in your cell phone plan. What do you do? You look for a different house or a different job or maybe a different marriage or a different cell phone plan, right? We just change our circumstances in order to pursue comfort. And as Americans, we have the resources and the freedom to achieve a lot of comfort for ourselves. That works to a certain degree, right? One of the places where my wife and I decided to pursue uh, better comfort in the past year was in our sleeping circumstances, we, got, we went on this trip and we stayed in this hotel with this amazingly comfortable bed. And we, we, we came back from that trip and we were like, why did we sleep so well? And then we realized, oh, it's because the bed we sleep on at home is old and it's like sleeping in a canoe. Like there's a body indentation. You kind of roll in there and settle in for the night. And then you roll out in the morning and go on with your life. And so we decided, you know what, we got some savings. Let's go, let's go buy a new bed. It's time. So we went to the Mecca, the Mart. And we went to, of course, the, the bedding zip code at the mart. <laughs> Have you shopped for a mattress lately? I think mattress shopping is maddening, and here's why. Because in the back of my mind, I know that I'm making a decision that's going to affect me every day of my life from here forward. Right? I'm sleeping on this thing every night. There's no possible way for me to decide in 30 seconds whether it's Comfortable. Right? I'm in, a, I'm in a showroom, and there's a salesman standing there. He's like, yeah, try this one out. So I Lay on there. Yeah, it feels pretty good. It would have to have broken glass and razor blades in it not to feel good for 30 seconds. <laughs> right? The one next to it is $500 more. He's like, oh, now try this one. I lay down on it. Feels basically the same. Feels like a bed. I don't know. Is it worth $500 more? I don't know. Maybe I'll think so in a year. Right? How do I, what do I do? So we strolled around for hours, and Made a perplexed decision. And anyway, settled on a bed that actually has been really good. And so they brought it home and took away our old one. And, man, I've slept a lot better this last year. Been a lot less cranky. A lot less irritated because I've been sleeping better. It's just been wonderful. So in our life, in our experience, that's one small area where we said, hey, there's some uncomfortableness. There's some discomfort. Let's replace that with better comfort. Changing our circumstances. Changing our situation. Now, though we've grown accustomed to pursuing comfort in that way as Americans, we all know there's two ways that that pursuit of comfort falls short, right? There's two ways that comfort, by changing circumstances, actually doesn't satisfy. The first problem is that that sort of comfort is always temporary. In in my situation, that bed is going to wear out just like the old one did. Hopefully it'll take a little longer. But eventually I'm going to be replacing that as well. All the comfort that we pursue through a change in circumstances is temporary and often at risk, right? Your house could burn down. You could lose your job. Your spouse could decide to be hard-hearted towards you. There's all kinds of risk involved in the circumstances of life. The, The deeper and more significant problem Is that much of what makes us uncomfortable, we're actually powerless to change? Often the things that create the deepest discomfort in our lives are things we can't fix. We can't change the circumstances that we're in. You can't change cancer, you can't change the death of a spouse. You can't change a messy divorce that still has implications in your life. Many times the circumstances that create discomfort we're actually powerless to do anything about. That's exactly where the people of God find themselves as Isaiah is writing to them in chapter 40. In chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah is dealing primarily with events in his own day. He's talking to the people of Judah in about 700 BC when he's living. For the rest of the book, Isaiah's prophesying, he's writing to a future about 140 years distant. He's speaking about events not in his own day, but events that are to come about 140 years ahead in the history of God's people. And the primary situation the people are going to find themselves in is in exile in Babylon. You remember in Isaiah's day, Assyria is the main problem, the main world power. But what happens over the coming century is that Assyria is eclipsed by Babylon. And about 130 years after this writing, the people of God go into exile in Babylon. Jerusalem is destroyed. This is a captivity that God has decreed. This happens because God decides to allow it to happen. In fact, God tells Jeremiah, another prophet who's one of Isaiah's contemporaries, he says, I have set my face against this city, Jerusalem, for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. God even prohibits Jeremiah from praying for something different to happen. He says, Jeremiah, I don't want you to pray for me to change my mind. This is what I've decreed. This is what I've decided. It's what's happening. I want you to be my messenger and go tell the people. So you can imagine Jeremiah's job, right? A lot of fun to be the guy who says God has decreed that the city is going to get burned and you're going to get taken into exile. He didn't have a very fun life. Now, you know texts like this are in the Bible. You, you know this is true, that God decrees these kinds of things. You don't really have a category for what to do with that, do you? You're not quite sure how to reason with why would God want to send his people into exile. Part of the reason that doesn't make sense to us is because we're so addicted to comfortable circumstances. We don't have a category for why would God want us to experience discomfort. That doesn't even factor into the equation for us. We are Americans. Comfort is what it's about. But how many of you have lived long enough to to know that God has a different understanding of comfort than we do? God has a different vision of what comfort entails than we do. So here's the big idea. Here's the main thing that the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, wants to drive home for us this morning. True comfort isn't circumstantial. It's theological. True comfort isn't circumstantial. It's theological. The deepest, the truest, the realest comfort does not come through a change in our circumstances. It comes through an understanding of who God is. This is what all of chapter 40 is about. And you see it right here at the end of verse 9. Isaiah says, Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. You want comfort? Behold your God. God has a word of comfort for you. Here it is, himself. True comfort is not circumstantial, it's theological. And so here's the outline for this morning. I want to show you why beholding God leads to comfort. I want to show you how we behold God. And then we want to look at one particular aspect of God that Isaiah particularly wants us to behold. Why beholding God leads to comfort. How we behold God. And and one particular aspect of God's being and character that Isaiah wants to draw our attention to. So first of all, let's consider why would it be that beholding God, seeing God, comprehending God leads to comfort. Why is that true? Why is comfort theological in nature? The key to understanding this is the little word glory in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. Isaiah tells us, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is saying, a day is coming when all of creation will behold the glory of God. The only question is, will you behold his glory in salvation, or will you behold his glory in judgment? It's about his glory either way. The word glory in the Hebrew language is a word that means weightiness or heaviness. I want you to think about your life like a solar system. Everything in your life, all the aspects of your existence, are revolving around some center, some sun. There's something at the middle of your universe that, that keeps everything, or that, that everything is orbiting around. And God's intention is that that center would be Him. He's the only being with the glory, the weightiness, the density to hold it all together. And and the main problem in our lives and the main way we experience discomfort is that we put something less glorious at the center of our lives. And we try to allow all of life to orbit around that thing. But here's the problem. Nothing is as glorious as God. Nothing besides God has the pull to keep everything together. And so when we build life on something besides God, things start to fall apart. Planets start flying out of orbit. Chaos begins to reign. If you think about most of the discomfort in your life, the word chaos is maybe a good synonym, isn't it? Parts of your life sort of flying out of control. Aspects of your existence feel like they're not grounded and centered and in orbit the way they should be. Why? Because God's designed to be at the center of your world. And when he's not, stuff doesn't work. This is why beholding God, seeing God, is the key to true and lasting comfort. Because only God has the glory to keep it all together. And it all being together, your life having to it a sense of wholeness and fullness and peace and meaning. That's the deepest and truest comfort. See, when we see the glory of God, I want you to notice what happens. It doesn't change our circumstances. It changes us. Look at verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Isaiah is not saying that in God's kingdom it's going to be flat like Kansas. He's speaking here of spiritual topography. What he's saying is, some of us are depressive we tend to live in the valleys but when we see the glory of god it lifts us up some of us are proud and self important we tend to elevate ourselves but when we see the glory of god it brings us low some of us are just rough and uneven but when we see the glory of god it it smooths us out See, the comfort that Isaiah is speaking of and offering to us is not just the comfort of individual wholeness. It's a vision of a community where the glory of God is at the center and the people are being beautified and smoothed out as they experience and participate in the glory and the goodness of who God is. That's what a healthy church looks like. That's what the people of God are supposed to be like. And it comes by seeing the glory of God, by knowing God in all of his glory and weightiness. Isaiah says to us, do you want comfort? Behold your God. Only God has the glory, the weight, the significance to to hold us together and to smooth us out. That's why beholding God is the means to true comfort. So, if, if we need to behold God, to see God, to comprehend God, in order to experience comfort, then how do we behold God? Great. How, how do we do this? How do we get there? I want you to notice the structure of the first half of Isaiah 40. Notice verse 3, a voice cries. Verse 6, a voice says cry. Verse 9, go up to a high mountain, lift up your voice. This This chapter in its beginnings is structured around these three proclamations or these three declarations or cries. The first and the third relate to beholding God. So verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And then verse 9, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. He's saying, here's what I'm crying out telling you. See God. Recognize the glory of God. See him for who he is. But then sandwiched in the middle are verses 6 through 8. Let's see what they say. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah is telling you how to behold God. How do we see God? How do we know what God is like? How do we begin to grasp who God is? Through his word. Through his self-revelation. Think about it. What is Isaiah doing? He's writing words. What are we doing this morning? We're reading those words and reflecting on those words and trying to understand those words. And those words are picturing for us and describing for us and painting a picture for us of what God is like. Some of them are metaphor, some of them are imagery. He's he's marshalling the power of words to say, here's what God is like, see him. This is how we come to know and see anything, is by words that reveal to us reality. Words that connect us to the way things are. So the way we come to know what God is like are through the words that he's given us that reveal him, that show us who he is and how he works. Now, since about 1960 or so, we've been a little less sure that this is how things work. Because there's a movement in the philosophy of language called post-structuralism that arose in the 60s, and it says that our use of words, when we use language to communicate with one another... Our use of words is merely language games. We're sort of just playing games with each other. In other words, there's no objective reality out there that our words refer to, but rather we create reality by our words. It's not that there's an objective reality that exists that we can speak about. It's that we talk and we create reality. Whenever I get into a conversation with some grad student, who's been drinking this Kool-Aid. Here's what I like to do. I like to say in the middle of the conversation somewhere, you don't exist. They usually kind of are shocked. And I say again, you do not exist. They usually say, I'm right here. We're having a conversation. And I say, oh, so what you mean is my words don't create reality then, do they? Because you're still here, even though I said that you don't exist. So there is an objective reality out there besides what we say. Is that what you're saying? The the philosophical framework underneath this is so simplistic that any intelligent freshman can tear it to shreds, yet philosophy departments all over the universe are hiring the learned, the educated, the intellectuals to teach the next generation. Words don't create reality. Words describe reality. The existence of objective reality is what makes our words meaningful. It's what gives anything meaning. Words describe what is real. Words reflect reality. And so God's words reflect what God is like. The words that God has given to reveal himself to us reflect the reality of what God is like. Now, is language limited? Absolutely. You can't comprehend the fullness of what God is like because God is eternal and everlasting. But you can comprehend truly what God is like. Why? Because the words that he's given, the words that the Bible uses to describe him accurately reflect reality. And so God's word is how we come to see and know and behold God. Isaiah is saying, listen, people of God, you want comfort? Behold your God. How? How? through this Word. Know what He has said about Himself. Comprehend and understand His revelation of Himself, which is primarily ours in Scripture, and in His Son, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So we behold God through His Word. The point of the Word of God is to show us God. So listen, the point of The Bible, the point of God's word, is to help you see and know and understand who God is. This is not like the owner's manual to your car, where when you forget how to work the surround sound, you pull it out of the glove box and go, where is that? Right? That's not how the Bible functions. It's not something you use only when necessary. it's, It's intended to help you understand and see and behold God. It's intended to be a means of comfort. To help you comprehend and know the God who is the source of true comfort. And so if you're a worshiper of God, you should be on a lifelong quest to know the Word of God. You should be on a lifelong quest to know the Word of God. So how how are you doing on that? I mean, here's what I say. This is my longing for our church. That if you're a Christian, if you're a worshiper and a follower of the Lord Jesus, you'd know your Bible at least as well as you want your doctor to know medicine or your mechanic to know car mechanics, or your lawyer to know case law, right? Like any other place you go in life where someone's supposed to know something, you assume, well, I hope you know what you're supposed to know, right? You've been to a mechanic who didn't, and that's why you don't go to him anymore. Likewise, if someone wants to know about God, where are they going to go? They're going to go to a Christian. Say, hey, I hear you worship God. What can you tell me about him? You're like, go talk to my pastor. No, don't do that to me, people you are Christians, you and I are to know our Bibles. This is how we see God. This is how we know what God is like. This is how we behold God, through his word, through how he's revealed himself. So Isaiah's offering us comfort. He's shown us that the comfort we need comes from beholding, seeing what God is like. And he's shown us how we behold God through his word. And now for the rest of chapter 40, he's just going to draw our attention to one particular aspect of what God is like. There's a lot that we could see about God. Isaiah, for the rest of chapter 40, just wants to put the focus squarely on one thing about God, and that is the fact that God is creator. It's not the only thing you need to know about God, but it's one of the most foundational things you need to know about God. Isaiah wants to hold up this truth that God is the creator, and he wants to say, let's just talk about this. What are the implications? What does this mean? Because God is creator, he is big. This is the basic truth we teach in Cormdale kids. God is big. Look at verse 12 is where we get it from. One of of the places. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Isaiah is grabbing for the biggest, most impressive things he can find in your experience—oceans and mountains and all the dust of the earth. He's saying, "Yeah, it's kind of like a, kind of like a large handful for God. Kind of rest, kind of right there." God is big; He's the Creator, therefore He's vast. Not only is God big because God is Creator, He is wise. Look at verse thirteen: Who has measured or instructed the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Isaiah is talking about the reality that in our experience as created beings, anyone you know who's good at something, who has understanding in something, who's wise and discerning about something, has learned that somehow, right? Someone taught them. They had some life experience that made them good at what they do but not God who taught God who instructed God. No one. He has all wisdom in himself. He's an inexhaustible fountain of wisdom because he's the creator. Not only is God big and wise, but because God is creator, he is sovereign. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Verse 17, all the nations are, are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. All the hand-wringing in our lives about global diplomacy and geopolitical realities. How are we going to deal with Ukraine and Russia and Iran and Iraq? And and how are we going to solve all the problems in the world? To God, not a big deal. He's got that. He's not up in heaven wringing his hands wondering how we're going to figure this out. Because God is creator, he's big. He's wise, he's sovereign, and and he's without equal. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? Isn't this how we teach kids? Mommy, what's lightning? Well, it's kind of like fire, but a little more powerful. It's kind of like when you touch the electrical outlet, but a lot more. We're trying to liken it to something that they understand in their experience. It's kind of like that. God says, hey, when we're talking about the creator, who are you going to liken him to? An idol? By the way, you're going to see from here forward in Isaiah just all kinds of mockery of idolatry. Because it's so ridiculous. But it's only ridiculous when you step back and reflect on it, right? See, idolatry is the natural disposition of our hearts. We're prone to worship created things instead of the creator. And so part of what Isaiah is going to do is just sort of show us the folly of that. Here's the beginning. An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who's too impoverished for an offering, if you can't afford gold and silver... He chooses wood that will not rot and seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So this guy spends time and energy and thought and craftsmanship to build this really neat idol that can't even move. Compare that to the creator who spoke all this into existence. Isaiah says it's not comparison. God's without compare. (laughs) Do you not know? Did you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Don't try to understand God by finding something in the creation, and then just making a comparison. God says, I'm the creator. Here's how you learn about me. Start with my revelation. Start with what I've revealed because there's not really anything in your existence and your experience that you can compare me to. I'm beyond it. I'm bigger than that. I'm more powerful than that. I'm more worthy of worship than that. I want you to notice that Isaiah does not see creation as some second rate doctrine that we can sort of shove off to the side because the science department UNO gets kind of nervous about it <laughs> well now I'm, Isaiah sees creation as a foundational theological conviction it 's important that you see this in all the conversations about origins, the point of the Bible is not to teach us the how of creation it 's to reinforce the fact of creation, however, God did all this he's the creator. The fundamental distinction in Christian theology is creator and creation. If we get that wrong, once we remove creator and say all there is, is creation, then everything's up for grabs. There's no truth, there's no meaning, there's no authority, and there's no one to whom we owe allegiance and honor and worship, but because there is a creator, there is all of And we then, as created beings, have to ask the question, what does it mean for us to be rightly related to the Creator? This is what it means for God to be God. Isaiah just wants to reflect on the fact, hey, God is created. Let's just think about that. Think about the implications of that. This is the essence of what it means for God to be God. But remember, his goal in this whole chapter is comfort. So he's reminding you of all this deep truth about God as the creator for a reason. Because he wants to bring a specific kind of comfort to your experience. So here's where we see it, verse 27. Notice the change in tone. He's he's been making all these majestic statements about what God is like. He's been asking all these rhetorical questions. Now he says, Why do you say, O Jacob? And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Isn't that exactly what we tend to think when we're uncomfortable? God doesn't see. God's not paying attention. He doesn't know. He's not intimately involved. Why do you say, oh, quorum deo? Why do you speak, oh, Christian, my way hidden from the Lord? He's, mars- he's going right at one of the core objections in our hearts that keeps us from trusting God, right? Yeah, yeah, I know all that truth about God, but right now, in my discomfort, he's not paying attention. He doesn't see i got to figure it out for myself. Isaiah's answer is gentle, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Don't you remember? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. That's the summary of what he's just said for verses and verses. Hey, don't you remember? God's the creator. Here's what that means. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, even when it doesn't make sense to you, God knows what he's doing. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. See what Isaiah is saying? Because God's the creator, because he made everything, because he's big and wise and sovereign and without comparison in the universe, because of all that, he can give strength to the weary. He can renew you. He can bring comfort. He can sustain you and help you. See, true comfort is not circumstantial. It's theological. True comfort doesn't come from a change in my situation. It comes from seeing God in the midst of my situation and knowing what is true about God in the midst of my situation. Now here's the paradox of this chapter. The paradox of this chapter is that you can behold God without beholding it. You can see God without seeing Him. What I mean is, you can acknowledge God as Creator without loving Him for what He's done for you in Christ. Listen to John Calvin. It is one thing to feel that God, as our Maker, supports us by His power and governs us by His providence, And another thing, to embrace the grace of reconciliation offered to us in Christ. To say what Calvin's saying another way, it's one thing to be a theist and another thing to be a born-again Christian. It's one thing to have a sense of who God is as creator, it's another thing to know God as redeemer. The one is foundational to the other, but the one is not complete without the other. And so this morning, I don't just want you to see God as your maker. I don't just want you to know that God is the creator. I want you to embrace the grace of reconciliation that's offered to you in Christ. I want you to see not just God as creator, but God as the bringer of new creation. This is the storyline of the Bible, is that because God created everything in the first place, God can also recreate God can also restore what's broken. God can take dead hearts and bring them to life. God can take sinful people and forgive their sin and give them a new life. God can take hearts that are dead toward him and awaken them because he's the creator. He made it all in the first place. This is not a big deal for him. But see, the Bible wants you to see that that this is part of what we need from God is to be made new, to be recreated. And this is exactly where Isaiah is pointing us. Look at verse 31, the end of the chapter. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now look, I know this is a coffee cup verse, okay? I know there's some Christian trinket at your grandma's house that has this verse on it. I know there's probably a picture of an eagle at the Christian bookstore with this at the bottom. Okay? But but I I want to reflect for a minute on what is Isaiah saying in this? For his original hearers and his original audience, what is he trying to point them to? What he's saying is, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. What did it mean for them to wait for the Lord? They're in exile in Babylon. It looks to them as though all God's promises of redemption have failed. What's he telling them to wait for? Jesus. Their waiting looked like waiting for the coming of the one whom God would send to redeem his people fully and finally and deliver them from sin. So when Isaiah says to them, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, what he's saying is, trust in the promises of God and in the Redeemer who's coming. That's exactly what it means for us to wait on God trusting in God and in the Redeemer He has sent. Now, here's the beauty for us, is that because we live at a different time in redemptive history, we actually have more reason to trust and to hope, more promises to grab onto than they did. Or to say it another way, we have a fuller word. We have more to grab hold of than the people of God in Isaiah's day did, because we live later in redemptive history. So they were waiting for the first coming of Christ, we're waiting for Christ's second coming. They were waiting for the initial promise of redemption. We're waiting for the fullness of redemption. They were waiting for the inauguration of God's kingdom. We're awaiting the consummation of God's kingdom. But what it means for them to wait on the Lord is the same thing it means for us. To embrace the promises of God and embrace the Redeemer that He has sent. So that's what I want to invite you to this morning. I want to invite you to embrace the promises of God and grab hold of by faith the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, I want to invite you to join the waiting people of God, to embrace the promises God has made in Jesus, to embrace the reality that God is creator, and because he's creator, he can recreate and remake your heart. He can give you a new heart, a new life, a new disposition of love and joy and gratitude toward him. That's not hard for him because he made you in the first place in his image. So would you just come to him this morning and invite him to do that in you? For those of you who have been Christians for a long time, I want to invite you to, to embrace the promises of God that he gives us in chapter 40 of Isaiah and the one whom those promises point us to, the Lord Jesus Christ. So whereas they looked forward, we have the privilege of looking back and looking forward. We look back to what Jesus has done, and we look forward to his coming again and what he will do. That's exactly what we're going to do in celebrating the sacrament of communion, which we're going to do in a few minutes. What is communion? It's a way of waiting for the Lord. It's a way of doing what Isaiah says, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. The sacrament of communion is an opportunity to demonstrate I'm waiting on the Lord and I need renewal. I need his strength. I need his grace. I I need to continue to rest in who he is and what he's done as I head out into another week. It's a way of renewing our hope and our covenant with God. And so let me set that up a little bit theologically. And I'm going to pray for us and we're just going to partake of communion and, and worship and leave, all right? Here's what we're doing in communion... What I want to invite you to do this morning is to come and receive comfort. To come and receive comfort. This is what Isaiah wants to offer you. Comfort my people, says your God. And if you're one of God's people, if you're a baptized, repentant Christian, I hope your soul says, yes, God. I want to receive the comfort you have to offer in your word and in your promises and in yourself. And so communion is a way of coming and recognizing the primary promise God has made, the thing that convinces us that all the promises of God are true, is the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come, we're receiving the symbol of bread and wine representing his body and blood that's a way of confirming and reaffirming our hope and our trust in God. That's what you're doing. You're coming in response saying, yep, God, I want your comfort. I want you. And, And let me just reflect on this theologically for a minute. What I'm asking you to do is to come in response to the preached word of God. There are some traditions in Christianity that say that it's actually in the receiving of the bread and wine where the grace is. So it doesn't matter um, whether you trust really deeply in God or whether you're following God. You just receive this. And in receiving this is where you get grace. The whole point of what Isaiah is saying is, no, 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 listen to me. It's in response to the word that you receive grace. So the grace in the sacrament of communion is not in the bare elements themselves. It's in what God is testifying to us through those elements. This is God confirming his word. He's saying, I've made these promises to redeem my people and here's my down payment, my son. And so when we come and receive bread and wine, we're receiving in faith the word of God, the promise of God and saying, yes, God, I want to take your word. I want to receive the promises you've made in your son. And I want to walk out from here rejoicing and living in faith in you as creator and you as redeemer. So I want to invite you to that. I want to ask you to pray with me. And we're going to come and receive communion. Uh, Those of you who are serving, would you go ahead and make your way up as soon as I am done praying? And then we'll take time. You take a minute, come and receive the bread, dip it in the wine, and then partake. There'll be bread and wine here at the front. In the back, bread and juice, and then in the station over here will be gluten-free if you need that. Um, So come, receive the bread, dip it in the wine, and then partake. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the great comfort that you offer us in yourself. And Father, my fear is that these words can seem abstract. We're so addicted to comfort that's tangible and that's fast and that's present tense and that I can see and touch and feel and that feels like it has an immediate effect. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to see all the false comforts that we chase and see instead the truthfulness of the comfort that you offer us in yourself even as we come to receive the bread and wine this morning, let it be a tangible and visceral reminder of the truthfulness of your promises. That all that you have said that you have done, you will do. And we're caught up in that through faith in Christ. And so would you comfort us and renew us as your people God, we want to rise up with wings like eagles, not in some cheesy uh, Christian merchandise kind of way, but in a way that says our souls are alive to you, full of your grace, caught up in your mission, because we trust and believe in who you are and what you've done. So renew us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.